Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we're gonna be talking with a great deal maker, you know, one that uh, definitely has done it a few times. And I think that today we're gonna learn a few things. So I guess without further ado, let me welcome our guest today, Craig Fuller. Welcome to the show. Alejandro, how are you today? It's uh, great to be here. Yeah, so Craig, so originally born in Tennessee. So how was life growing up there? You know, it's great. Uh, Chattanooga uh, is a big outdoors town. It also has the uh, so the two things that Chattanooga is really known for uh, outside of the city. One is being a big outdoors community. And the second is having the fastest Internet in North America. And if you think about COVID uh, in a COVID world, uh, it's actually ideal. Those things are, um, you know, are serendipitous in terms of the environment. So um, we benefit from having high quality internet and you can work from home anywhere. And being an outdoor city gives people the opportunity to get outdoors and, and not be clustered in, you know, in close quarters. So how did you get into all this entrepreneurial and, and, and business, you know, type of type of drive? I mean, did you have anyone there in the family or, or how did you come about this? Yeah, my father, uh, so I, I really follow a long line of entrepreneurs, uh, founders. My grandfather, uh, my great-grandfather actually owned a farm and, and did some transportation trucking. Uh, my grandfather started, uh, was really a pioneer of the long-haul trucking industry in the 1960s and built uh, really uh, a patriarch of long-haul trucking. And then he had two uh, sons. One was uh, his biological son, my father, and one was a stepson, uh, my uncle. Uh, and they went on to start two very large trucking companies. My dad started a company uh, by the name of U.S. Express, which has about 12,000 employees today. And my uncle started a company called Covenant Transport, which has about 5,000 employees. And they both have built these very large uh, freight businesses. And I learned, uh, you know, I wanted to be like my dad and wanted to be an entrepreneur like my father. And uh, he taught me a lot about running a business and also taught me a lot about uh, transportation. And, you know, funny enough, you actually went to university, studied business, entrepreneurship, also did your master's degree, and you also worked for the family business. So how was that experience like? Yeah, so I, I was in the family business, uh, worked for my father. Um, you know, it, it, it creates a lot of, there's both great things about being in a family business and, and there's a lot of things that are, are 
you know, are, they, they make it harder to be in a family business. And I, and I, look, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, change it for the world. And I think anyone that's fortunate enough to be born into a family business is certainly, you know, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, it's the best training ground. Um, and it's far more valuable of being in a family business and having a family entrepreneur uh, as a father or mother for that matter, uh, because they teach you how business works. And it's far more valuable than an MBA program or, or any type of degree program, because you actually are seeing them sort of scope their business in real time. And, you know, they bring it home and they talk, talk about stuff at the table. And uh, you, you know, if you're like me and you sort of adore your father and idolize him, uh, you, find that the most effective way to learn, you know, to, to spend time with them and learn how, what makes him uh, uh, tick is to learn the business. And that's what I did. So I, I sort of soaked up all the knowledge I could from my dad. And the two things he taught me, one was about, you know, how to run a business and the other was how to run a trucking company. So at what point do you decide that is your time to shine? Because obviously you spent <laughs> it there like almost a decade. So, so why did you say, okay, I'm going to go at it on my, on my own? Well, I was there. You got to remember that decade that I was there was when I was a teenager. So it wasn't, I was learning. My dad started his business in 1985, and it was a family business, a bootstrap family business in those days. Uh, but he, he grew it really fast. And in 1994, he took it public. And so I was nine, would have been 15, 16 years old when he took it public. And um, I became the comp, the, the, the business's first help desk technician. So it was running wires and loading. Those days was MS DOS. I sort of became the, the local, you know, the help desk for the company and did all sorts of odd end jobs. And then I learned how to dispatch trucks and wash trucks and maintain trucks and all the stuff you need to do as a truck company executive. So I, I really got a lot of firsthand knowledge, even though I was a teenager. But I had been going to the office with my dad really since the day he started his business at six, you know, six years old and spent time with him a lot of time with my dad. So, you know, I had decades worth of experience, but, it, you know, I was 24 years old when I left the family business and I had gotten this idea in college. Uh, so they had started an air freight business uh, when I was in college and I started selling air freight and I would basically call on all the major air freight borders and around the, and my territory was Dallas, Fort Worth. And it wasn't because I was the best salesperson. It was a big market. The salesperson I had it quit. And I, sort of by default took that role and built this really nice sales territory up. But around the Dallas-Fort Worth airport, people would call me and say, you know, I don't care what it costs, but I need a truck. And this became sort of, a, I realized there was a lot of money in providing sort of last minute trucking capacity to these air freight forwarders. It was a different product than, than what I was supposed to be selling, which was air freight. Uh, it was trucking services. And so I became known as the trucking guy uh, around the airport and, after about two years of that, decided I could go start my own business. I went to my dad. My dad's company was public. And I said, I want to start this business based on on-demand transportation. Uh, and he sort of patted me on the head and said, well, I'm the CEO of a, uh, you know, a large uh, corporation, Fortune 1000 company. And you can't go start this business uh, that competes with mine. I can't, if you do, I can't help you. But I'm willing to let you sort of entrepreneurship side this business inside of my company. And I think my dad thought I would fall on my face and fail. Like he just, I don't know that he had a ton of confidence in me. Is you know, you sort of know the the good and bad of your kids, and so you can sort of observe them as you know their faults as much as you do their strengths. Uh, but my dad thought it would be an experiment and a lesson for me, and, 
I would get a lot of education running this small division of this company, sort of an upstart. We started this, and within two years of operation, uh, we were doing 140 million in revenue and 68 million in margin. It was immensely successful, and it was actually the most profitable part of the company. And I think it really exceeded a lot of expectations of both the internal folks and external. And the, and so you know, having built this business that was driving a lot of the value in the stock, uh, I wanted you know I was getting paid the business generated 68 million a margin, and I was getting 100. I think my my salary in those days was 110,000 without any bonus or commissions. And what was what was really upsetting for me was when we first started this division, the executive team had given me this compensation package that was based on 25. Basically, I could take 25% of the margins and divide it up among my team. And as soon as we launched this within the first month, um, they ended up changing it to 5%. They kept whittling away at the margin percentages to the point where um, the compensation level that that the team was at was greater than even the you know directors and VPs and C-level executives. I would have been in over seven figures, uh, you know, two years into this business myself. But I was getting uh, basically a salary. And what upset me about that, I went to the chief operating officer of the company and he said, you know, Craig, I can't give you, obviously, you can't have this kind of compensation. But what I will do is put you into the executive suite, you know, the executive bonus plan, which was equivalent to his bonus. And if the company does well at the end of the year, you'll get it. Well, that came around uh, for all the executives to get bonuses and be in a public company. You know how much everybody gets paid. Uh, he got a bonus, but I didn't get one. He basically reneged on me. And his comment to me was, You're, you know, your family is doing really well uh, and you'll do well. And basically the assumption or the comment he was making was because my dad and and I didn't own a lot of stock in the company, I had some, but because my dad was doing well or the family stock was doing well, that I should uh, be willing to sort of self-sacrifice for the company and and not expect something in return. And that that really opened my eyes to the reality that if I wanted to chart my own destiny, even where you have a family business, it's actually easy for executives around my dad or other executives to, to assume that you're sort of taking one for the team. Even when they're doing well, um, doesn't mean that you do well. And it, it became this realization that if I wanted to effectively build my own company and I wanted to do well financially, then I had to actually leave the company, leave my dad's company. And that was what led me out of uh, U.S. Express to basically go start um, a payments business that we ended up selling to U.S. Bank in 2012. Got it. And that was TransFund, correct? It was TransCard. It was TransFund as a part of U.S. Express. So it was actually a fuel card business that had been incubated a part of U.S. Express, part of the family's business. And it was this sort of really small, you know, couple million in revenue uh, fuel card business that I took over in 2005 um, and uh, then created this prepaid fuel card business uh, that we ended up doing uh, fuel card processing broader than just U.S. Express. And we also did prepaid cards for large community banks. And so we from the time I left that business, there was about 400 community banks that used our platform for banking services. And obviously, this was a nice segue that led you into what you're doing today, FreightWaves. So why don't we talk about FreightWaves? How, how did you get started with FreightWaves? Yeah, so I sold, you know, I would say in 2014, I left TransCard. And it wasn't on my own accord. My, my, we had 
as part of that transaction with U.S. Bank, we had kept the fuel business, or we had sold the fuel business, but we kept the prepaid business. And my family, my my dad was the primary investor as part of Transcard, even though I had some equity in it. And effectively, I got ousted or fired, if you will. And that was pretty demoralizing to get fired by your own dad. It's, it's not fun, especially in a town as big as Chattanooga. Uh, so it's not a huge city. And so I left Chattanooga in 14. Um, I left the industry and I basically just disappeared. And I'm actually interesting when you talk to a lot of founders that have gone through sort of a bankruptcy or and it, it, the company wasn't bankrupt, but it was it had some structural issues that that I had never addressed uh, uh, in the business or couldn't figure out how to address. And I just became burned out. My dad just uh, took me out of my misery, if you will. But it still, it was very personal for me. And so I left the city, moved to Dallas. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I didn't really, obviously didn't want to work from you know, the family business anymore. Um, uh, so I ended up doing some consulting around logistics and transportation, freight tech, uh, and I was also day trading commodities on the side. So uh, I was I was day trading. You know, this is during the commodity crash in fifteen and sixteen, and they kept popping up. CNBC kept popping up something called the Baltic Index, the Baltic Exchange, which is a futures market based on global freight. And they kept talking about global freight being an indication and a benchmark for economic activity. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. And they were talking about shipping specifically. Uh, global uh, ocean shipping. And I thought, well, why isn't there one on trucking? And so I started to learn about how financial markets work and came up with this idea to to start Freightway, or what's now known as Freightways. And basically, the original idea was to create a, a futures market based on trucking. And what we realized when we did that was there was this whole ecosystem around commodities markets that included uh you know, financial data services and, and media services, et cetera. And that's, that's essentially the, uh, how Freightways sort of came about. So then tell us about, you know, how you went, because obviously this was not the first rodeo. So now you had a clear understanding of what you wanted to do and what you did not want to do with this business based on experience. So what would you say were the three biggest things that you learned with Transcard that you knew for sure you were really going to do here with Freightways? Yeah, so I would say the first thing is I didn't take money from my family. So uh, my dad had, in the early days, had nothing to do with the company, uh, did not invest. And I didn't even reach out for him for, for really, you know, I kept him up to date. My dad and I sort of, you know, when, when I got fired from Transcard, uh, there was a period of time where I didn't want to talk to my dad. Uh, but my dad always loved me and I always knew that. And so um, I, I had sort of given him updates, but I never went to him for money. And even if I had gone to him for money, I don't think he would have uh, invested in me. And that didn't seem right anyways. And so I went out to go find outside investors. And I think having the freedom of not taking family money or friend money, because the, the original investment came from, A, I took a, a credit card that had a I – the thing I did have was I didn't have a lot of liquidity or cash, but I did have really good credit. And so I ended up opening a credit card, one of these zero APR credit cards. And because I had good credit, um, Bank of America actually extended me $50,000 of a credit line. For zero, if I opened up the credit card, I got a, a zero APR credit card. And I used that uh, $50,000 credit line to basically fund the starting of this business. And then we found an angel investor that ended up putting money in. But I would say the first thing is I didn't take money from family. And the reason that that was important is I had seen it both at US Express and at Transcard was when your family's invested in it, in this case with my dad, one was his own company and one was a, a company that he had invested in. The problem is you get far more emotion inside the business. Is is he's thinking more? 
in some ways he's thinking like a founder because in some ways you're the proxy of him as a father figure because you're executing oftentimes what they, you know, what he wants of you, whether, whether or not he is subconscious or conscious, it's still an element. And then you get this and you get this emotion tied into it, both on his side and on my side, where it's a lot of sort of pent up emotion. And that, that can destroy not only your business decisioning, but can also destroy your relationship. And one of the things my dad would do when I would, uh, you know, we, 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 need, we needed funding. So he wouldn't fund it up front, but he would basically fund it on calls. And what it meant is, you know, if we needed $100,000 to make payroll that month, I'd have to call him and ask for it. He didn't give the, he didn't put the money into a bank account on like an inv- traditional investor does, where the founder basically can decide how that money is spent. He sort of dribbled it in. And the problem was I had to ask him every single time we needed money. And the, and, and so if he didn't agree with the decision, he would use sort of hold that decision over my head. And I would be in order to get funding for payroll, he would, you know, play these mind games of, well, I may not fund this anymore. Uh, I'm tired of this business or I'm tired of the way you're handling it or whatever versus sort of directly handling it. There was no board structure. Or anything. And that was pretty difficult because you're dealing with this emotion of your dad doing the things that dads do when you're a kid is you have to ask for privileges or ask for an allowance, but he's doing it to a business where you have 100, you know, 80 to 100 people that's working for you. And the thing about this business is we have raised outside capital, we have outside investors, we have a board. It's very formal. And you you have a board that's very rational. They're not emotionally tied into the business. Doesn't mean they don't love the business or not invested, but they're not, not a personal emotion. They're, they want the business to be successful and can make very rational decisions about what's best. And I think that has enabled me to become a much more effective founder and entrepreneur because I know what I'm working for. I know the rules of engagement. I know what they want from me, which is to maximize their return. Unlike dealing with a family member like my dad, where you know the 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 goals are somewhat fluid or inconsistent. And I think it's simply because he's my dad. And when you're a father at times, and I have kids myself, you do make you know, you're trying to deal with the moment. You're trying to teach your kids lessons and develop their character and, and also just deal with, you know, financial decisions that you make as a family. Sometimes you use a little bit of that. That's just the, you know, the natural thing to do with my kids. You're using a little bit of that sort of mind game, if you will. If you do this, I'll do that. Or if you want this, you have to do that. And you, it's just the way parents operate. I think when you have outside rational investors, you sort of know what the expectations are. And they're treating it as a business the same way that, you know, effectively I'm treating it. Absolutely. So more more structure. So I guess for the people listening, Craig, what ended up being the business model of Freight Waves? So Freight Waves is a media and data business. So we're often called the Bloomberg of freight. And we basically aren't, we don't move freight, we don't match freight, we don't have trucks, we don't have a brokerage business. But we help companies that are in logistics uh, deal with issues um, and uh, monitor the market and manage any of the uh, issues that take place in the industry. So we help them mitigate risk. We help companies determine pricing, all the things that really uh, uh, freight companies need to be successful of using sort of anonymized and aggregated data. We help them give them data to do that, uh, to be successful. And then we have a media business, which has about 50 contributors. Uh, These are full-time journalists uh, uh, or analysts that, uh, diagnose the freight market and publish articles and podcast and video cast of the of what's happening around logistics. 
And that's what Freeways became. Very cool. And and I guess uh, you were alluding to investors earlier and that structure as well. How much capital have you guys raised to date? Yeah, $75 million. Nice. And I know that you've done some VC and some private equity. So what is the difference between VC and private equity? So effectively what you know, every investor is looking for, whether you're in the venture capital world or the private equity world, is you want to return. And so all of these investors are looking for you know, a return on their money. And um, venture capitalists are looking for that you know, 100x return. For them, the returns are exponential. And you got to think about what VCs do. Is For them, they're almost like, uh, I think, a description of a, a wildcatter that's drilling for oil. And so one of our early angel investors is also a, a venture type investor. He's not institutional money, but he's a, he's a sort of a personal manager. And he, he writes big checks. I mean, he, he wrote us a $2 million check very early on as an angel, sort of a super angel. And what's interesting about that is I asked him once about tech investing. He goes, tech investing is very similar to oil speculation or wildcatting. Is in the oil business, you drill a lot of holes and, and you know, you may drill 10 holes and none of them come up with oil. Or you may drill 100 holes and none of them come up with oil. They're obviously today's technology, they're far better than they used to be. The same thing exists in uh, investing in uh, venture startups. If you think about that oil example, you may go through 100, 100 holes and, and not come up with anything. But if you happen to strike oil, that all of a sudden that oil well may generate millions or hundreds of millions of dollars for you. Um, and, and it offsets all of the, uh, losses or zeros that you got in every other well you drilled. And that's the same thing that happens in venture investing is venture investors will make, you know, 10 investments a year or 10 investments in a portfolio. And they only need one of them to sort of get that hundred X return. And so for them, they're writing a lot of checks and they're doing really small investments relative to their fund hoping that one of those investments, uh, 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 you know, does well. Now, they have a system for validating or, or uh, validating their investment thesis, and they, they do it a lot. But a lot of it's gambling, anyway, and it's a lottery ticket if they're successful. Now, some of them are much better gamblers or very, much better at, at achieving success than others, uh, and they get to go on to sort of, the, the, you know, in the big leagues, if you will. Uh, but that's how venture investors think. Now, private equity, growth equity, for them, you know, a three, four, five times return, typically they try to minimize their losses. So they're, they don't want to be in a game of losing money. They don't want an investment going to zero. A VC who says, fine, go to zero, I'll walk away. Uh, and I want you to do it quickly because I, I want to know if this business is going to ever go anywhere or not. Whereas a private equity fund uh, it wants to get, you know, a couple turns on their money. Three to five X is okay for them. And as long as you're doing well as a private equity fund, then they're going to leave you alone. Um, I think private equity funds, unlike venture capitals, VCs don't go into rescue companies. You know, a lot of founders get this thought that a VC, the moment they take venture capital money, that all of a sudden this sort of, you know, team of professional managers are going to show up at your door and take over your company and you're going to be sitting on sidelines and sort of get you out of there. That's not how venture capitalists work. Private equity, that's usually how it works um, if you're not doing well. So if you're not hitting your numbers and they feel like the business isn't going the direction they want, then they may replace management. I think you know that going into it, that your goal in a private equity fund is A, protect the business from any significant downside, the downturn, and B, 
to grow the business and help them, you know, achieve their three to five X return. And as long as you know that going into it, I think you'll, you'll be safe. Absolutely. So, so for the folks that are listening, to give them an idea of the operation, I mean, any, anything that you can share so that it gives them an idea on how big FrightWaves is today? Yeah, revenue, uh, I talked about this some. So as of September 2020, we're, you know, run rate of $19 million company. Um, so, uh, you know, we're growing 200% year over year and uh, we're scaling really quick. So about 130 employees. Wow, very cool. So I guess uh, one of the questions that I typically ask on the show is, if you were to have the opportunity to go back in time and have a chat with your younger self, with that younger Craig that is thinking about, you know, putting a, a gap in the future, in that perhaps that problem, you know, that they're seeing a solution that they're bringing, I mean, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to yourself knowing what you know now and, and why? Yeah, I would say, you know, success of these businesses are all about distribution. So if I look at the lack of success I had at Transguard, the problem was I didn't, you know, it took us too long or took me too long to figure out that you needed distribution or you needed community. And the thing that I've learned in this business, and so we built, you know, Transguard, uh, it took us about five years to, to bring, you know, we had one bank as a customer from 2005, 2010. And then all of a sudden we had 400, but we figured out in 2010, we needed distribution. We needed a channel and that's what led the business to be successful. But it was, we had burned so much cash, not selling or not distributing into a channel that we were always sort of playing catch up. Um, the, in this business, the first thing I wanted to solve was distribution. And so the very first thing we did at Freightways was I, I didn't know what the product was going to be necessarily. I didn't know how we we're going to get there, but we solved the distribution problem first. We built a community first. And once we built the community, which we have inside of Freightways, then it's much easier to, to, to add product to uh, that channel. Very cool. So I guess uh, for the folks that are listening, Craig, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Yeah, LinkedIn is usually the best or Twitter. So you can find me at Freight Alley uh, on Twitter or uh, just on LinkedIn at Craig Fuller uh, on LinkedIn. Amazing. Well, Craig, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Take care. Thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.